Good morning, my friend. I hope you're doing well. Dr. Lee Warren here back with some self-brain surgery. It's Thursday, and it's normally Theology Thursday, but today I'm going to release an episode. It really is theology, but we're going to talk about faith and science and have a special guest. Dr. John Lennox is a world-renowned Oxford mathematician, professor emeritus. He has lectured everywhere. And by that, I mean all over the world, the United States, Russia, Great Britain, everywhere. He's been interviewed by everybody. He's debated some of the most famous atheists, Christopher Hitchens, Richard Dawkins. He has been a profound apologist for the Christian faith and a person who's written tremendously with great clarity about the interface between science and faith. He's a great thinker, tremendous, tremendous lover of Jesus, and has an incredible sort of credibility when we say, can faith and science mix? The book we're going to talk about is one of his smaller books called Can Science Explain Everything? I read it a few months ago, and I just was so taken by how Dr. Lennox carefully and and very precisely laid out the fact that science just can't explain everything. And so if you're struggling with that idea, if you want to know if it's reasonable to have the faith that you have in Christ, or if you've found that science doesn't quite give you the answers or the satisfaction in your life that you're looking for, and you want to find some hope, Dr. Lennox will help us get there today. We just had a great little conversation. He's agreed to come back on the show a couple of times in the future to have deeper conversations about other topics and and to go deep more deeply into some of his other work. But the book is Can Science Explain Everything? It's a little short book you can get on Amazon. It's a tremendous overview. And if you've got somebody in your life who's struggling with these big questions, you have a child, a grandchild, a friend who's in college, or somebody who's wondering why all the smart people seem to be saying that there's no need for God or that God's been overturned by science, John Lennox is a credible voice who knows the truth and can help you understand it in a very clear way. So today we're going to talk about the big question, can science explain everything? With Dr. John Lennox, I'm so honored that he took the time to be with us today. And before we get into the answering of his question, can science explain everything? I have a question for you. Hey, are you ready to change your life? If the answer is yes, there's only one rule. You have to change your mind first. And my friend, there's a place where the neuroscience of how your mind works smashes together with faith and everything starts to make sense. Are you ready to change your life? Well, this is the place, Self Brain Surgery School. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and this is where we go deep into how we're wired, take control of our thinking, and find real hope. This is where we learn to become healthier, feel better, and be happier. This is where we leave the past behind and transform our minds. This is where we start today. Are you ready? This is your podcast. This is your place. This is your time, my friend. Let's get after it. Friend, we're back, and I'm so excited and honored today to have Oxford mathematician and really well-known author, John Lennox. Dr. John Lennox is here with us all the way from the UK today. Welcome to the show, Dr. Lennox. Thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to be with you. It's uh, it's so great. I've been telling my audience about you for a while now, and, and we're going to talk about one of your many books today, Can Science Explain Everything? But before you do that, would you mind starting us in prayer today, sir? Not at all because it's always a delight to start a conversation by referring it 
to the God that we believe in because he's real. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for every opportunity of discussing the truth of your existence and your revelation through Jesus Christ. Help us as we discuss these things. And may the people watching and listening begin to see that Christianity does not mean committing intellectual suicide, but there are reasons to believe, very powerful reasons. And we pray that as we discuss, this may become clear. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. I appreciate your time with us today. And I think we'll probably have another conversation or two, Lord willing, in the future about some of your more recent work. But I wanted to talk today about a little book that you wrote a few years ago called Can Science Explain Everything? We have a lot of people listening here who have been through hard things. My, my wife and I lost a child a few years ago, and, okay. and that's really what led me to start writing and podcasting. And a lot of the people listening here are going to be people who had big questions about faith and doubt. And, and sometimes they, they hear scientists speak, and it challenges what they think they believe, and they want to know where to turn for hope. And I thought maybe you could help us to dispel some of the notions around the idea that you can't be a curious scientific person and also a person of faith. Well, I am a very curious scientific person. And my response to the question might intrigue some listeners. Everybody is a person of faith. The question is, faith in what? And it's it's a very interesting thing because I, I've debated with many atheists, uh, and they tell me that atheists have no faith, which amuses me greatly because then they write lengthy books about what they believe. <laughs> That's right. And the point is, I think, and it's a good place to start, that every one of us has a worldview that we believe. And the question to ask is, what is the evidence for its truth? And I am a Christian because I believe there is powerful evidence for the truth of Christianity of two kinds. There's the evidence of what I call the objective evidence, that's using the term a little loosely, from observing the world around us and the evidence of Scripture and all the rest of it and history, And then there's the evidence of personal experience, and the two marry together, I think, superbly. And I think perhaps the first obvious point to make is, let me put it this way, I'm not remotely ashamed of being a scientist and a Christian because I would want to argue that it was Christianity or more exactly the biblical worldview that's given me my subject. Any slight acquaintance with the history of science will tell you that the great pioneers, starting with Galileo and then Kepler, Newton, Clark Maxwell, and so on, they were all believers in God. And my intellectual hero, C.S. Lewis, put it together very aptly when he wrote a long time ago now. He said men became scientific because they expected law and nature. And they expected law and nature because they believed in a lawgiver. So far from their faith in God hindering their science, it was the motor that drove it. So that's where I want to start, that there is a deep, very deep connection between what we might call the Judeo-Christian, the biblical uh, revelation of God, 
and the rise of modern science in the 16th and 17th centuries. Okay. And then, of course, we, we build on that. But it seems to me that's a very easy and important point that's recognized by virtually all historians of science. Absolutely. And, you know, we have people like Maxwell inscribing the Psalms on the door of the Cavendish Laboratory. That is correct. Great are the works of the Lord. Yes. Right. I love that story. And I love, you know, how you you address the idea in your book about how science really started as an investigation of how to show the things that God has done. And somewhere along the way, somebody decided to only investigate things that they could touch and feel or look at in the material world. So tell us about what naturalism and materialism really are and, and how that came to be maybe. Well, it's very odd, really, because scientists of all people tend to believe lots of things that they cannot see, touch or feel and have to infer their existence. But naturalism is a worldview, really. It's the atheistic worldview that uh, the let's put it this way. Let's stand back from this, Lee, because it's best, I think, to paint a bigger picture. I said everybody has a worldview. Then we go to the fact that there are really only three major worldview families. The first is my own, which is theism. That is, there is a God who created the universe, but the universe is not part of God, nor an emanation of God. He created it, so to speak, outside of himself, and he built into it the regularities on which it works. The diametrical opposite view to that is naturalism, atheism, uh, materialism. They're almost essentially the same. There are subtle philosophical differences, and that is the view that there is a universe, but there is no God behind it. And then in the middle somewhere, there's a view, pantheism, which really says that God and the universe are one great um, kind of entity, which is, in a sense, not, <clears throat> which is, which is in, in a very real way, not personal, an impersonal universe, which is regarded in some sense as God. But the, the main debate in the Western Academy, at least, is between atheism and naturalism. And naturalism says this world is all there is. And so it takes a a reductionist view to things. Everything can be reduced to uh, the material, mass energy, so to speak. And I have great difficulty with that because the myth that is spread abroad in our culture is that science and faith in God do not fit well together, but that science and atheism fit so well together that you can deduce atheism from science. My view is that science and God fit beautifully together, but that atheism actually undermines science. So science does not sit well with atheism. So some of my main reasons for not being an atheist are not because I'm a Christian, but because I'm a scientist. Right. And I unpack that in my little book. And I think you did it beautifully. And I think you parse out something that's important that that sometimes the especially the media and, and general public knowledge gives credibility to scientists when they say things, but discounts 
philosophers or people of religion or other types of people who know things when they speak because they're not scientific. So, so tell us about the difference between scientific statements and statements by scientists. That's a very important distinction. You know, the great American Nobel Prize winner, Richard Feynman, a physicist, won the Nobel Prize, and he wrote once, outside their own field, the scientist is as dumb as anybody else. And uh, that's absolutely true. And I need to watch because I'm speaking outside my own field of mathematics at this very moment. But I think the point that you're making, Lee, is that science has a big cultural authority for us. And and there's reason for that because of its spin-offs, technology. Uh, we live in the information age, the advances in computer science and artificial intelligence are simply bewildering. And the things that we can do that w- would have been unheard of 20 years ago. But the problem is that science scientists start to speak on things outside of their field. And people think that they're speaking with the same authority. And I often say, you know, when people like the late Stephen Hawking said there is no God, that's simply a statement of his personal belief. It's it's not a scientific statement. It's not based on any scientific evidence. In fact, It goes against the evidence. But because these people are brilliant, and they are, I remember Hawking at Cambridge, and he's a genius. I've written a book about him, which has just been revised recently, by the way. There's a new edition of my book on God and Stephen Hawking. But the sad thing is that once they say there's no God, people say, well, who am I to query that? And that's why I want to come in and say, look, you can query it. You have every right to query it because they're just making a statement of their own personal belief without evidence. Wow. So then there's a, there's a difference then between science, which you can, you can give us a good working definition of science in a moment. And this idea of scientism or the worldview or religion built around science. Well, it's actually quite hard to define science. Uh, the philosophers of science have virtually given up on it, and they, they prefer <laughs> to be more modest. And they say we can talk about certain things that are connected with science, like repeated experimentation, like formulating hypotheses to account for observation, testing that hypothesis by means of experiment and all this kind of thing, and coming to a conclusion tentatively and then stronger and stronger as we go on. But there's no one scientific method. But scientism is a very different thing altogether. Scientism is the view that science is the only way to truth. So if it doesn't come under the natural sciences, then it's not going to give you the truth. And I want to make several points about that. First of all, it's logical nonsense. I have loved logical logic, mathematical logic, and all other kinds of logic since I was very small. If you think of the statement, science is the only way to truth, does that statement come from work in science? Well, absolutely not. It's a statement about science. So. If science is the only way to truth, and that statement 
is not a statement coming from science, then the statement is true and false at the same time, which means that it is logically incoherent. And it's very important for people to realize that it is absolute nonsense. It's very much like a statement I meet in another context where people tell me all truth is relative, but they expect me to believe that statement as an absolute truth. You see, <laughs> <That's right>. <laughs> <laughs> it's nonsense, and we need to push back hard at it. Now, to come to our senses on the scientism thing, Peter Medawar was a Nobel Prize winner in Oxford, and he once wrote a brilliant book, Advice to Young Scientists. And he said, It's very easy to see that science is limited. It cannot even answer the questions of a child. Where do I come from? Where am I going? And what is the meaning of life? And Medawar then said, you have to turn to literature, to philosophy. And I would want to add to religion and the Bible to answer questions like that. And the fundamental mistake is this, that people that espouse scientism, saying that science is the only way to truth, make a second mistake. And that is to think that the natural sciences, I emphasize that, by the way, Lee, for a reason, because science originally, it comes from Latin scire, to know. It's all knowledge. So if you think of science as all knowledge and then say it's the only way to truth, that's a tautology, that's obvious. But we're talking about the natural sciences. That's what in the English-speaking world, we use the word science for today, but not in the German-speaking world. That's another matter. So what we're saying here is that science is not coextensive with rationality. Just think about it. If science was the only way to truth and coextensive with rationality in every single major university in the world, you'd have to close half the departments because history is not natural science. Neither is philosophy, neither is linguistics or literature, but they're all rational disciplines. So it's it's an utterly fatal mistake to go in for, and sadly, Dawkins and Stephen Hawking tended to espouse this view. I I don't quite understand how they managed to get their heads around the illogicality of it. But such was the authority of science. If it isn't in their mind science, then it it cannot give us any information whatsoever, which is sheer nonsense. But we need to say so. And unfortunately, the media don't give enough attention to people who are capable of saying so. That's right. You said something in your book that I thought was a really good point, which is science can often get to the how and even the what. Like science can observe something, break it down, figure out how it happened or figure out things about how it happened, but it can't ever give us the why. And you told a story about your Aunt Matilda baking a cake. Like, like unpack oh, yeah. that for us because it's a great yeah, example. Sure. Yeah, this is important. You're right in saying that science generally talks about the how things work. It also deals, there are two kinds of why. That complicates the matter just slightly. There's the why of function. You know, why is this bit there? You can often answer questions like that in science, but it cannot answer the why of purpose. And my illustration, uh, actually it was due to 
uh, my mentor many years ago, but I modified it and used it up hill and down dale because it's so easy to understand. I find even <laughs> professors can understand it sometimes. Um, the idea is here's my Aunt Matilda, fictitious aunt, and she's baked a cake. And we're in a room full of Nobel Prize winners. And I say to them, look, please analyze this cake. And so they look at the chemistry of it, and the biochemistry of it, and the physics of it, and all the rest of it, and give us a very detailed scientific description. And then I f finally put them this question. Please, now you've analyzed this cake, tell us why she made it. Now, you physicist, why did she make it? Well, a physicist sticking to her trade will have to say, I don't know. Physics cannot tell me, and so on and so forth. And no matter how brilliant they are, their scientific disciplines cannot tell them, and they will never know. And here's the important point, unless Aunt Matilda reveals it to them. Now, watch what happens when she tells them. Does their rationality cease? No. They use their rationality to understand what she says. But their rationality will never get inside her brain, uh, unless you're going to tell me that neuroscience has got that far, will never no. get inside her brain to know why she made it until she reveals it. And it's exactly the same at the large level about the universe. We can... Uh, find out a great deal of fascinating things about how it works, how it runs, all this kind of thing. But if you ask why it was made and what's it for, we'll never find out unless there is someone who stands in the same relationship to the universe as Aunt Matilda stands to the cake. She made it for a purpose. And of That's course, right. I believe there is a, someone who has revealed it and his revelation is called the Bible. So we start with that phenomenal statement, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And we read fairly soon after that, that God created human beings in his own image. And the, the purpose of the whole natural world is to have a home for human beings made in the image of God, which of course means, incidentally, that we can learn something about God by studying ourselves. But that's another that's matter. Right. So that's the idea to indicate that science is powerful, it's wonderful, but it is limited. And one of the reasons actually, Lee, why science is powerful is because it only answers or asks a much narrower set of questions. And as I said, it cannot answer the why questions of meaning and purpose. That's right. Can you give us then, so we, we've discussed science and what it is and what it is not and what it should be for and, and all those things, but can you give us a, a rational basis for trusting in scripture as God's word? Why do you, as a highly educated scientist, why do you think the Bible is reasonable and potentially hopeful for people to follow and believe? Well, that's a, that's a huge subject because I've been living with scripture all my life and I'm 80 years old now. So it's been a long time. I've been fascinated by scripture I for just under 70 years, I would say. And it's a cumulative effect. Now, we need to start somewhere. And the striking thing about the 
the Bible is that it is what we call today a meta-narrative. It's overarching. It starts at the beginning. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and it overarches right through history, placing humankind made in the image of God on earth. And the whole thing is a narrative about God's dealings with human beings. And the God who's revealed in the Bible, and I often say to people, look, don't dismiss the Bible or Christianity before you've listened to what it has to say. Because the criteria for truth, there are two main ones in philosophy. The one is, does it tell a consistent story? The second one is, does it gear into my understanding of reality? Is it meaningful in terms of my experience of life and all the rest of it? And my general statement would be that both intellectually, emotionally, and experientially, I have come step by step to trust more and more, not simply the Bible, but the God who stands behind it, because God revealed in the Bible is not a theory. He's a person. And we need to grasp that because the supreme revelation of God, I believe, is when God became human. And I'm amused a little bit these days of artificial intelligence where the attempt is being made to turn us into transhumans and become little gods. So it's a story of human beings becoming God. The Christian story is the exact opposite. It's about God becoming human. In order that we can get to know him. And therefore, you have to ask specific questions. Does the Bible make sense when it comes to the big picture of nature and creation, all of that? Does the Bible make sense historically? Is Are its central claims evidence-based? And of course, immediately in terms of the Christian story, the central claim is that Jesus claimed to be God incarnate and demonstrated that by God raising him from the dead. And so at this point, I would want to do what I have done in great detail in one of my books, Gunning for God, and to look through the eyes of a fairly skeptical scientist, uh, I'm a skeptic by nature, and ask the, the questions, what is the evidence that Jesus actually rose from the dead? Now, that that's I'm sure you've done this in your podcast many times, but I find that increasingly convincing, not only in terms of the intellectual side, but the fact is if Jesus rose from the dead, then he's alive and we can encounter him. That's and therefore, right. I would then go into the level of experience that I believe that in my life and in my family and my marriage with my children and grandchildren, that there has been a constant experience of the reality of God. Now, of course, a psychologist could come and say it's all a delusion, but, but, but if that's all a delusion, then the whole of life's a delusion and we get nowhere. But that, that's, that's, right. that's a bigger topic. So that's one right. would have to pinpoint some of the specific things. And, one of the reasons I wrote the little book you started with is to give a bit of evidence to what people's appetite so they can look further. Well, you've done a beautiful job. We're going to give away three copies of the book to listeners. They're going to write in and, and it's going to be a delight for them. And 
Dr. Lennox, you've had an incredible career and you're standing up for the faith. And I guess as we, we are bumping right into that half an hour that we agreed on, and I, and I do hope that we can do this again in the future. But would you leave us with a word like if there's somebody out there who's hurting, who, who's gone through something really hard and they're wondering where they can turn to find hope just from your perspective? What, what's the thing that can give people hope? Well, it's a very good question to end on because I wouldn't talk to you unless I believed there was a real hope, real hope in the face of evil and a suffering world. Now, the hardest question that anybody gets asked or that any worldview has to face is the problem of suffering. And I have tried to deal with it in some detail. I wrote a little book, Where is God in a Coronavirus World?, which is cheaper than a cup of coffee. And if you want to know my (laughs) thoughts on that, they're all over the internet. But I would just like to say this. One of my main reasons for being a Christian is because Christianity doesn't so much give me a solution to the problem of suffering and evil, but it leads me to a person who understands and who himself is the solution ultimately. Now, let me unpack that just a little bit. You see, there are two issues here. I could be talking to someone who is watching suffering, but they're not suffering themselves. That's one perspective. I call it the observer perspective. There are other people who are suffering, and that's the personal perspective. And when we try to approach this question, we have to approach it from both sides because the one person will be looking for intellectual answers. The other will be looking for comfort and pastoral help. And those two things don't always go together. But cut a major story short, Christianity talks to us about a God who suffered. And if it were not for the fact that Christ suffered on the cross, and the claim is that he was suffering there for us, then I wouldn't be able to say a word on this topic. And if he'd simply died on the cross, we'd never have heard of him. But the thing that changes everything for me is that God raised him from the dead. Because, of course, death is the thing that everybody dreads. And the marvelous thing about the Christian message is it doesn't stop us dying. It doesn't stop us suffering but it gives us a hope that transcends death. And that is something that I am not embarrassed to share with people because no matter how much we may be suffering, to look at the one who came into our world and gave his life for us, if that's actually true, that's something we can begin to cling on to even though we haven't tied up all the loose philosophical ends that this huge problem deals with us. Now, that's totally inadequate, but it's it's my conviction that Christ both died and rose again and therefore is alive, which tells me that my death isn't the end. Whether I die suffering or I die in my sleep, it's not the end because Christ is going to raise me from the dead one day. And that gives me terrific hope in the face of all the problems that exist in our world today. And I've actually written a book 
about the future in connection with artificial intelligence, which raises many questions for people today. And it's called 2084, Artificial Intelligence and the Future of Humanity. And that's been available for the last three years. So there is something that you can look at. But on the question of suffering, if I may mention it, Lee, I've just come out with a book on Abraham, who, of course, over half the world's population owes some sort of allegiance to him historically. And he was a man that went through a huge amount of difficulty. And I've tried to grapple with the problem of suffering in his case in that book. So that's probably Mm -hmm. all I can say at the moment. But don't give up, I would say, to people watching and listening. Try and find uh, some help. There's many things on the internet. And if you Google my name and many of the leading universities in the in the USA, I have done public debates on the problem of suffering and you can find them quite easily. That's right. We'll put links in the notes. Dr. Thank Lennox, you. thank you so much for your time today and for your great work, your great defense of the faith. I'm, I'm honored to have a minute to talk to you and it's just such a pleasure. Thank you. God bless you, sir. My pleasure. Thank you very much indeed, Dr. Warren. What a tremendous talk. I'm so grateful and honored that Dr. Lennox took the time to be with us. We have three copies of Dr. Lennox's book, Can Science Explain Everything? You send me an email, lee at drleewarren.com with your name, your mailing address, and your zip code. Name, mailing address, and zip code. And I will, Lisa and I will select the winners 48 hours after this episode goes live. We have three copies of the book, Can Science Explain Everything? from the good folks over at the Good Book Company, Abigail and the other Publicists there have agreed to give us three copies of Dr. Lennox's book. Check out Dr. Lennox. He is an incredible thinker, and I'll put a link uh, in the show notes to his website. And I would love for you to read some of his other books. And if you're wondering about the big question, can science explain everything? Dr. Lennox will help you find the answers. And the good news is, my friend, you can start today. Hey, thanks for listening. The Dr. Lee Warren podcast is brought to you by my brand new book, Hope is the First Dose. It's a treatment plan for recovering from trauma, tragedy, and other massive things. It's available everywhere books are sold, and I narrated the audio books. Hey, the theme music for the show is Get Up by my friend Tommy Walker, available for free at TommyWalkerMinistries.org. They are supplying worship resources for worshipers all over the world to worship the Most High God. And if you're interested in learning Learning more, check out TommyWalkerMinistries.org. If you need prayer, go to the prayer wall at WLeeWarrenMD.com slash prayer, WLeeWarrenMD.com slash prayer, and go to my website and sign up for the newsletter, Self Brain Surgery, every Sunday since 2014, helping people in all 50 states and 60 plus countries around the world. I'm Dr. Lee Warren, and I'll talk to you soon. Remember, friend, you can't change your life until you change your mind. And the good news is you can start today.